Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about Dennis's three favorite ologies. I don't even know if I can name three ologies, but without further ado, episode 31 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of ultra boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. I want to ask Dennis to tell us something that we don't know about the liturgy. Wow. But something that's very important. There's so many things you don't know about the liturgy. No pressure. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, ultimately, there's so many things none of us know about the liturgy. But, you know, I make this joke about my three favorite ologies and that everybody should have their favorite ologies. There's all kinds of ologies. But I remember, you know, I had a doctorate from a very reputable university and just started taking some classes here at Mundelein and... um, all these words started coming up like soteriology and eschatology and cosmology and teleology. And these were all the central studies. I mean, ology just means the study of. And when you study these different things, you say, oh, these are the essential elements of liturgy. And we don't even, I've never even heard the words before. And so Monsignor Mannion, who founded the Liturgical Institute, wrote a a beautiful essay called Rejoice Heavenly Powers, the Renewal of Liturgical Doxology. That was another Mm -hmm. one. Doxa. D-O-X-A means glory, but it also means a right opinion. So if you have the right understanding of God and give right praise to God, that's his glory when you glorify him, but also he glorifies you. So understanding properly is is glorification of God. And I was like, wow, I've never heard this term before. And then when I read this essay, he said there are these three interrelated terms that were constituent of the Christian world order. Whoa. The whole order of the Christian view of the world is based on these three ologies, which are uh, my favorites, not because he wrote it or I liked them, but because that was what? The Christian world order. If we talk about Don't the, keep us hanging. What are they? What is the Christian world order? Oh, wait. No, go into your ologies Okay. First. Well, there's, uh, first of all, doxology. This is the glory of God and the glorification of God, but also cosmology, which is the study of the order of... Cosmetics. Cre- creation. Oh, sorry. The order of things, yeah. cosmos. Cosmetics comes you, from that What do you know about too. cosmetics? What? Uh, I have a wife. You got a face, you got a face made, a wife, made for podcasting. Yeah, thank you very you much. You're wearing miscarriages. No, hey, I have. I used to be in plays, and we used to have wear eyeliner and stuff to make our eyes pop. Okay, cosmology <laughs> and eschatology. Oh, I was going to go geology. Okay. So eschaton is the end times. That's when the full um, restoration of all of creation and the uniting of God and humanity together is uh, is completed. So it's the end of the world in the good sense that God and humanity are, are one again in this kind of wedding feast of bride and groom. Is that is that related to this word parousia? Well, it which is. Which means like, doesn't that mean like fullness of being or fullness? Parousia. I like it. Ousia. Parousia. Parousia. Parousia is uh, being, I think. Like homoousios, yes. And so that oh, we sure. have the end times when... God has fulfilled every deficiency that we have. So this is really the important thing to think about liturgy, is that it always has an eschatological dimension. And, you know, we say many of the same things over and over again, but my favorite unofficial definition of active participation in the liturgy is becoming by doing. You want to be heavenly. You want to be unfallen. How do you do that? Well, you practice it 
in the liturgy. So you sing heavenly songs, you see heavenly things, you act in a heavenly manner, you say heavenly words, you hear heavenly words, the truth of God is given to you, to your comprehension, and then bodily you act, mind, heart, all five senses, and then you, you become heavenly through this doing, this theosis, or becoming like God, or teleosis is a new word for oh me. Oh my gosh, I Telos. need a dictionary when we do this <laughs> podcast. Telos is the, is the study of the ends of things, not not so much in linear sense, but in the sense of what is the goal or purpose of a thing. And our goal and purpose is to be glorified and be happy with God. That as you become like that, that's the process of becoming like your own goal. That's teleosis. I think I mentioned this book before, but C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce speaks to this very clearly. Right? Oh, yeah. So he has this uh, dream where he takes this bus to heaven, but when he gets off the bus, he's uncomfortable there. He's not ready to live there. And so the grass is too, it's so real, like it hurts the bottom of his feet. And the rain is so... Uh, full of, uh, of substance that when it lands on him, it, it, it hurts. When he hears the waterfall, it's so real, it's noisy. And so he, it takes a while to get acclimated to, to live in heaven. And at first it's really uncomfortable. And it seems like what you're describing, Dennis, is that when we go to the liturgy properly celebrated and participated in, this is, our, this is kind of a, a, a dress rehearsal, but it's our practice to live in our eschatological, uh, teleological destiny. Right. Imagine on the first day of learning golf, they entered you into the master's. It'd be like, I don't belong here. I'm I'm scared. I'm nervous. My I'm handicap worried. would be sixty. Well, whatever. You're not ready. <laughs> that's, that's generous. So what do you have to do? You have to practice. You have to become a golfer by doing. So you could just say, Why doesn't God just let us into heaven? It's not really a question of getting in the door. It's a question of being ready to be there. And that's what liturgy does. It it gives us the the methods and patterns to become ready to be happy with God. And so if you forget that, then you just do whatever, and it's, you're bound to some sense of responsibility or uh, the old fear-based go to church or else you'll wind up in hell. That is not really a full theology of liturgy. So if you're going to f- understand and celebrate liturgy properly, these three elements, cosmology, eschatology, and doxology, are really important. And these were all in Vatican II. Monsignor Mannion makes the claim that these came, he says, in high relief in Sacrosanum Concilium, and we kind of forgot them, and he gives a bunch of different uh, reasons why. Yeah. So can you take us through a liturgy and point to where we see doxology and eschatology and uh, well, for, yeah, for, cosmology? Uh, <laughs> first of all, he My talks favorite. about how Sacrosan and Concilium speaks of the foretaste of the heavenly liturgy, that we sing a hymn with the warriors of the heavenly army. We venerate the memory of the saints, but we also hope to have um, what they have, and we wait for the time when the second coming uh, will be full. And so th- there's this phrase I just read in um, one of the music documents just yesterday, and it said, while the Christian uh, assembly is gathered waiting for the second coming of the Lord, they sing these songs. So it's sort of like Jesus on the horizon. It's like, oh, hey, he's coming. He's, we're going to be united. Let's, let's sing a song expressing our desire to be with him and to you know, say, come over here, Jesus, and be with us. And so this dimension is not so much just go to church because you have to and it's the rule. It's go to church to enter into this eschatological reality when you and Christ will uh, be one. And so this is about this yet to come. You have to ask the question, what is this yet to come like? What is the heavenly future um, very much like? Well, all traces of the fall are gone. So there's no disorder. There's no chaos. There's no um, sense of any disagreement among uh, people. Everything is perfected and glorified, radiant, colorful. All the descriptions in the book of Revelation of what heaven uh, might be like. Everybody's singing the praise of God together. Uh, in this sort of dialogical fashion as we talked about last time. So we have this notion, what is the heavenly perfection? How do we encounter that on earth? And if you don't do that, 
you might just pick whatever you feel like that week or whatever the musical publishers are putting out or whatever the cheapest vestment is or whatever the local architect gives you for a building. And you're missing this constituent element of the Christian world order, how things ought to be uh, and how things are in potency, uh, but we want to make so in act. All right, and so continue through so the, the This is the eschatological. Right, that, that's here. the uh, eschatology. As, fa- as described in Sacrosanctum uh, Concilium. Well, hinted at there, but um, Monsignor Menion brings out the notion that there are many ways you can look at the Mass. There's models of the Mass as the representation of the Last Supper, in a sense, that's right. It's the sacrifice of Calvary, and that's right too. It's the um, wedding feast uh, at Cana. It's the road to Emmaus, where Christ breaks bread and reveals himself. Um, but he says the number one thing to think about it is the banquet of the victorious lamb. So this is the wedding feast of the lamb described in the book of Revelation because it, it takes into itself all the other ones. It's the fulfillment of the road to Emmaus. It's the fulfillment of the Last Supper. It's the fulfillment and glorification of the sacrifice of Calvary. And so if you forget that, then the other things um, tend to disappear. Do you well, remember I, uh, uh, there was a it was a short book, I think, by or maybe it's just an article by, um, I think it was Aidan Nichols. It was called The Tale of Two Documents. And it was comparing uh, Mediatra Day, which was 1947, Pius XII, and this was like the first encyclical devoted to the liturgy with Sacrosanctum Concilium. And one of the, the, the points of um, contrast, or at least of emphasis, he saw between these two was while uh, Mediatra Day was kind of a, a backward looking, isn't the right way to do it, but it, it was, had a strong, uh, I guess what we would call anamnetic emphasis on recalling the historical you, events. Uh, you got to break that down. Sorry. Uh, 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 anamnesis means uh, to, to remember in such a way that it becomes present in the here and now. Right, so like a, uh, a mnemonic device. Right, okay. Uh, we did talk about this in okay, got it. Okay. podcast. So but anamnesis means it, it's looking back to the historical life uh, and events of Jesus that become present in the here and now. Uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, on the other hand, has a much more eschatological vision. Obviously, it doesn't deny the, uh, the anamnetic part and the historical part, but it has a much uh, clearer eye on the future and on, the, and on heaven. And you know, the reason why these past things can be made present today is because they're taken up into, into the heavenly places, into the eternal now, and can be in some ways brought down to us uh, in the Mass. That's a good way of representing, because I think that is true. I mean, I, there are things... In the liturgy where it reminds us of what has happened, but I guess, Dennis, you're saying the, the priority or the number one thing is to look forward to what the heavenly uh, Jerusalem is going to be like. Because it absorbs all the preparation. You can say the Old Testament gave us preparation to recognize Christ. Well, why do we want that? So we could enter into relationship with God and be with him forever. So the being with him forever is this the goal, and then these other things are part of that process. It's um, it's kind of like taking an SAT prep course. You know, you're not taking oh, the SAT. You could have taken the SAT. A way better metaphor than that. <laughs> well, you'll oh, see. you can't even spell SAT. Uh, I haven't even made the metaphor yet, and you're oh, telling sorry. me I have a better uh, one. Okay, so SAT. You want to take the SAT. You want to do well. Well, the prep course gets you ready to take it, even though you're not taking it yet. You're kind of taking it. You're learning. You're practicing, and then when you get there, you're like. Bam! I'm gonna you know kick the butt on this, this SAT, which and, I did not, by the way, and but. get a get a good score. So you want to be happy in heaven. The prep is not the goal. The prep is the the process. So liturgically, we pull all the heavenly things, future of uh, heavenly future, into our own time. Now the question is, if this is all in Vatican II, why didn't we do it? And Monsignor um, Manion gives a couple of reasons. One of them, he said, was the mindset of the '60s and '70s. It was not concerned with 
some heavenly future that we can contemplate and wait for. It was like, now, we want it now. Out of Vietnam, now. You know, racial equality, now. What do we want? This. When do we want it? Now. now. A thousand years from now. No. What do we want it? Now. And Delayed so, gratification. Well, yeah, that now. was not the mindset <laughs> of the, um, <laughs> that was not the mindset of the time. He also said there was a lot of rediscovery of what we call the historical Jesus or the a low Christology. Who was this guy? What did he do? Where did he do it? Um, and so... He calls the eschatological uh, amnesia of the of the sixties and seventies, and it's not in the documents, but it's in that is the a low times. blow. Incidentally, right, that's related to mnemonic. To it's right. to negate the memory. That's what and happens. amnesia. Amnesia is to forget, and amnesia is to unforget. <laughs> so it's an amnesia. Yeah, no. anamnesis is the opposite Whoa. of amnesia. Um, so he basically says that's why it happened, and we have to recover it because it's. It's in the nature of liturgy to participate in those uh, things. And so you know, people might have an instinct, oh, this church is bland, it's beige, the music is not inspiring, uh, I'm not getting much out of this. What they're really saying is, my own heavenly future is not being presented to me. My delight in what I'm going to become is not shown to me. You know, if you have a, a, a trainer, like a personal trainer, who's skinny and weak, you're like, what does he know about this, right? You know, if you want a buff trainer, so proof that he can know what you uh, should do. And so we want to have it with us to, to cheer us on and to participate in. It seems to me that uh, the, trans, the, 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 the transfiguration of Jesus as described in the scriptures is, is a, an apt analogy for this, right? The, uh, Peter, James, and John, they go up to the high place and they see the radiant uh, glory of Jesus shine through uh, his uh, humanity. This is, uh, seems to me what should be happening at the liturgy is we should get a peak of the radiance of heaven shining through earthly signs and symbols, music and architecture, and all of the rest, kind of this foretaste of what lies uh, before us. To motivate us to want to be that. That's we should all Which is just what Peter did. We need to do something. We need to build some huts. Uh, we, we can't just sit here. We have to go ahead and do something. Yeah, we should up. all be www.betransfigured.com. So. <laughs> well, we didn't pick that title accidentally, right? right. That for our conference in April, that transfigured means become glorified. Uh, you, everything about you, mind, body, heart, soul, becomes radiant with the light of Christ. It's a foretaste of your own heavenly uh, reality. And on earth, you'll be happier, not just waiting for some heavenly glory, but you can live that heavenly glory uh, in the beginning stages, uh, even now. And it makes sense because a lot of the uh, parts of the Mass come from the book of Revelation, which is us looking forward to that heavenly Jerusalem. Well, the that's the revelation of the pre-existing nature of the liturgy. There's the heavenly liturgy, which is the true full liturgy, and we try to make that knowable on earth, reveal it to the world. Is that a suitable transition to the second, which yeah, is cosmology? Yeah, we cos- need to get cosmology. into the second one. <laughs> well, right, if you're going to talk about eschatology, then you have to say, well, not only what is it like, but who's doing it. And so it's not just the Trinity praising the other members of the Trinity. It includes all order of creation. So the angels are singing the praise of God in their hierarchy of different choirs. The saints are singing the praise of God. Even the souls in purgatory are praising God in their limited capacity, even though they're on the edge of glory. They're still part of the worship of God, and they're hoping for fullness. What is a little less obvious is things like trees and stars (laughs) and rocks and lizards and slugs and Kevin. I mean, all of these things. What is Kevin going to look like in the new... In the heavenly Jerusalem. I heard, I heard he just became a great-grandfather. Is that right? I already thought he was a great-grandfather. No, a just great. a grandfather. <laughs> oh, great. that's right. Just he's a, a great-grandfather, but he's not a great-grandfather yet. Yeah. But he'll have low, long-flowing locks of hair, for instance, <laughs> when the time comes in his heavenly glory. <laughs> Return of the moment. Um, so who is there? Who and what are praising God? So the um, 
tradition in a lot of churches is to show paintings on the walls or mosaics of trees and stars and animals and um, fish swimming in the water and everything that all of the creation will be glorified. Uh, Monsignor Mannion calls it the whole created arena of salvation, both earthly and heavenly. Uh, these, even the unknown regions of God's creativity. So there may be some planet or star that's so far beyond uh, our ability to even recognize the x-rays or whatever comes from them, but that's still praising God by moving in the orbits that God uh, gave. Plants' roots go down and the flowers grow up and they produce seeds and seeds produce the next generation of flowers. That's all God's order, and by doing what God gave them to do, they're praising God. Do you remember how the Todayum begins? <laughs> Put you on the spot. You are God, we praise, praise you. you. You are the Lord, we acclaim you. You are God, all creation worships, worships you. And similarly in that um, after Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael get out of the uh, fiery furnace that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had thrown them in, in this canticle of Daniel, which we read. Hey, we're, I think, we're Catholics. We don't know the Old Testament. Come on. <laughs> there's, uh, uh, I guess, is it uh, maybe Sunday morning prayer? Yeah, sun uh, and moon. Bless the Lord. Oh, Stars like of heaven, one. bless the Lord. Yeah. Frost Do, and chill? Ice and snow. You know, you scrape that frost off your car in the morning. This is praising the Lord. Well, cold plus water equals frost. That's the way God made it. That's praise of God. And how, how, do, how does ice uh, bless the Lord? By, according to its, uh, the ontology given it by God, by being icy. Dew mm. blesses the Lord by an, doing what I dew does. For an by icy being, right now. By being to dewy. Well, you keep working hard, you might, uh, okay. you might earn it. But as you're saying, all of creation uh, is meant to praise the Lord, bless the Lord, worship the Lord. This is all throughout. Uh, this is uh, cosmology, right? Right. This is okay. co- the cosmos, the right. created order. Right. And every Christmas you see these specials on History Channel or whatever about the star that the wise men followed. You know, what was the star? And everybody has a different theory. One of the theories is that the planet Jupiter who's the king, um, went and landed in the middle of the constellation Aries, which was the ram. And the ram was the animal that was substituted for uh, Abel. The, uh, I mean, not no. Abel, um, Isaac. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, yeah. And so it was a symbol of sacrificial offering by the king, and the two were intersecting. And that was arranged before time began so that these three wise men would be able to follow it and find the Savior. That is cosmology at a very high level. But even if they just move in whatever orbits, that's... They don't have free will stars, but they have a will, which is a predetermined will that God gave. Stars don't take their union-mandated coffee break every hundred so million wait, years. I, you're telling me that when Christmas time comes again, we're going to be singing Jupiter of Wonder, Jupiter. <laughs> no? Well, that's one theory. All right. right. That, you know, they, that changes literally everything. But you know how many, cons- how many uh, signs of the zodiac are there? Twelve. Twelve. How many tribes of Israel are well, there? Well, there are thirteen. Ophiuchus. Uh, come yeah, on. Okay. But nobody wants to talk about Ophiuchus. And I don't want to either. So yeah. so twelve tribes of Israel, twelve apostles, twelve signs of the zodiac. That was the way the twelveness prefigured mm-hmm. the world in the in the non Christian, non Jewish world. So you have all this movement of uh, stars that become a way to know Christ. This is cosmology. And Jesus, uh, the true Lamb of God, is sacrificed during the, that sign of the zodiac, which is the Aries. And so even uh, even that even the, the stars are twinkling out the Lamb of God, uh, speaking about uh, Christ, who is the Lamb of God. This is actually pretty impressive. I didn't know this. This is amazing stuff. It's right. A lot of it's right in the Catechism. There's a whole section called "Who Celebrates the Liturgy," and most people would think it's the priest and the people in the pews. But it's what they call the whole Christ includes all of these uh, things and all of creation drawn up into the praise of God. 
Um, Monsignor Mannion quotes Paul Dokumov, who's this Eastern uh, theologian, and he says, ah, every, yes, Paul every Dokumov. Ev Dokumov. Shout out to uh, Paul, Paul Dokumov. Dokumov. Uh, I think he's, sure he's listening. Uh, everything is destined for liturgical fulfillment. When uh, David Fagerberg used to teach here, you know, he asked these questions. What's the liturgical end of whatever? It's the liturgical telos of a tree. It's not to grow flowers and you know, drop acorns on your car. It's to be cut down and turned into a statue of Jesus or a statue of the Virgin Mary or the beam Whoa. of a church or whatever. That's the liturgical end. There's sort of a natural end of a tree, which is to grow more trees. But the mm-hmm. liturgical end of us is to sing the praise of God. The liturgical end of you know, a diamond in the ground is to be put on a chalice or whatever. It's all brought to the liturgy, to the glorification of God, so that these things can burst into our own existence. You'd always cite uh, Aidan Kavanaugh that the liturgy was doing the world the way the world was meant to be done. Doing the world the way the world is meant to be done. And when we see these things in the liturgy, in the church building, and in the way liturgy is done, it's always the perfected... Uh, depiction of the cosmos, right? Right. It's the reorder. Dennis has said this before. You know, in the beginning, when God made the cosmos, everything was harmonious and concordant and worked in order. And with sin, it became chaotic. And what mm-hmm. the liturgy does, the liturgy is nature's and the world's great cosmetic, because it's putting things back in proper order the way they were originally intended to be. And so the question is, why did we forget this? This was in the tradition for a long time. Uh, Monsignor Manning gives a couple of answers. One, he says, is the enlightenment interest in hum- the human person. So they're not so much interested in eschatology anymore, but who are we now? What, what is a human being about? Man is the measure of all things in the earthly sense. This in anthropological turn, the turn toward the, the anthropos or, the, or, or man. But also you can see the church was in a post-Reformation kind of crisis mode for a long time. And so if the Calvinists are de- denying the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, you've got to be like, it's the true presence. It's the real presence. It's the real presence. You can't be arguing about these, like the next level of things, which is eschatology. If you can't even figure out what the Eucharist is. So it's like survival mode, like you said. Kind right. Of like, I right. got it. Oh. So they settle the Eucharistic you know, differences, or at least they stop arguing about them, and then they can move on to the next thing. Okay, we've got that settled. You know, uh, I've been thinking lately about how people at the elevation of the host, what, if they're pious, what do they say? My Lord, my God. My Lord and my God. But really what's happening at that moment is that... I need to be more pious. <laughs> that body is being given to the Father. So in the last, just the last few months, I've, and I haven't been saying Lord and my God alone. I've been saying, my Lord and my God. And then I'd say, Father, this is Christ's body offered to you in reparation for all of my sins. And all of a sudden the Father is involved as opposed to just this reinforcement of the reality of the Eucharist. They're both good. But that's not just making the Eucharist for us. It is offering the body of Christ to the Father for our own redemption. It's restating that cosmic event of Christ's body being offered to the Father. All right, we we need to get into doxology. Yes, so doxology is the thing that sort of encapsulates these other uh, two. Uh, As I said before, doxa means glory or opinion. The glory of God is man fully alive, for instance. The study of glory is, is doxology. And we, we, what do we call the doxology in, in a liturgical context? Is the glory be to the Father? That's what's referred to commonly as just the doxology. Yeah, I've never thought of that, but that's really good. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're singing about God's glory, and hopefully God's glory is coming down to us to be encountered. So the doxological nature of the liturgy is glorifying God, yes, in a sense, but it's also becoming glorified by sharing in God's glory given uh, to us, by becoming fully alive, which means becoming uh, filled with Christ's life. And these are the things that uh, this is what you do in the liturgy. 
And that's, but also this brings us back to the teleology again, the telos or to the end. That's is teleology, teology, whatever, is that one of your favorite ologies? It's or? becoming more one of like teleosis. I, ever since I heard, I heard Scott Hahn use that word teleosis the other day. Um, but we have a liturgical end. Everything mm-hmm. has a purpose and a goal. Our liturgical end, individually and as a group, is to be happy in heaven with God. How do you do it? Well, you experience it liturgically, and uh, and then you enjoy it. And God's glory is us fully alive with him. Chris's glory would be if my awesome little godson, his son, uh, what's his name? Oh, Lars, yeah, <laughs> Lars, became glorified and holy and happy with God. That would be his glory, and so God's glory is when that happens uh, to us. Yeah, they're almost like flip sides of the same coin, these, uh, these I don't know what the plural of telos is, uh, but... You know, it's St. Irenaeus who says, the glory of God is man fully alive. These two things uh, go hand in hand, you know. So if you want to glorify God, the best way you can do it is by becoming a saint. And if you worked really hard, so if you took another end, if you said, I'm really, really going to work hard to be a saint, you would at the same time be glorifying God. The two things go, uh, go hand in hand. Those are the ends, our hmm. sanctification, right. God's and glory. If, if you don't have cosmology, you're not glorifying God as much as you should because creation, doing what it's doing, glorifies God as well. And then if you don't realize that your eschatological goal is to be glorified, how can you glorify God if you're not, if you don't even right. know? They're, they're all interrelated. And it's important that we have, like you mentioned one time, you know, to go back to your working out metaphor, uh, like a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like that's, that's the goal, knowing that I want to have those type of muscles, I want to have this type of physique. But without knowing that and knowing what the cosmology of the end times or the heavenly Jerusalem would look like, then we don't know where to aim when we're aiming ourselves. Right. You don't know what the goal is, so mm-hmm. therefore you can't uh, properly go toward it. If you know the, if the score on the SAT is a 1600, that's your goal. Right? If you don't know, you'll well, just do whatever. How do you know when you've, uh, when you've achieved it? 1600? Well, it used to be 16. They've redone it now. It used to be 1600. I think there's a new grading system. There's three sec. I don't know. I'm too old to know these things. Again, horrible place to I know. reference. If I got a 1600 on the SATs, that'd be pretty bad today because I don't know how it works <laughs> uh, these days. But so es- eschatology and cosmology are uh, subordinate to doxology because they're contributive elements to glorification of God. So John Paul II wrote this um, Beautiful essay. That is the first person you're referencing in this podcast I actually know. Monsignor <laughs> <laughs> Manning, you've heard of Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. But he wrote this apostolic letter in 1995 called Orientale Lumen, or Light from the East, which you hear a lot, uh, that term, Light from the East, it's almost become a stereotype. Um, but he says, Christ is the light which illuminates the way and reveals the transparency of the cosmos. So the creation is revealed, the, the glory of creation is re- revealed by Christ, and the East has a sense of this. Importantly, he says, Christianity, Christianity does not reject matter. Bodiliness is considered in all of its value in the liturgical act. So we do things with our body, stand, sit, uh, proclaim, uh, breathe, uh, say words. And even the, something as dumb as a ball of gas in the sky on fire praises God. And it invites us to be one with nature. You think of all the nature lovers out there, and basically they just want to save the, the forest and let the birds live in it which is good enough, except to realize when the birds live in it, they're praising God with their song. And if they have a home and a nest, then they can praise God with their song. So the world, heaven, us, 
intellect, body, mind, soul, senses, they're all elevated and brought to perfection in this understanding. And this is, this is full humanity. This is not uh, some trick that theologians talk about so they can sound smarter than everybody else. This is how we become the fullest potential of ourselves. I think I called you a dim bulb in the, or you called yourself a dim bulb in an, in an older podcast. Who wants to be the electric light bulb with only half the voltage going through mm-hmm. it? It's lit up a little bit. Oh, that was so when we were talking about tapping into grace. Yeah. 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 We want to be blaringly uh, bright according to I want to be nature. a big ball of gas. You're pretty close to that already. <laughs> really, what, what is grace? It's not some inert thing. I mean, it's the divinity of God's own life in you, making you fully alive. And this is the ground for all aesthetic decisions, liturgy, uh, liturgically. Can you take a sort of boring, dull little vestment um, that's the cheapest one in the catalog, or can you get one that's radiant, reflective, colorful, embroidered, and looks more refulgent. like the perfection, refulgent, yeah, full of the fullness of its That's a word I learned on this podcast. <laughs> the music, is it the quickest and easiest and cheapest thing we can do? Is the architecture the cheapest and dullest thing that because we, we haven't thought about its eschatological, eschatological potential? This is not fussy high church liturgy. This is enabling the average person to glory and participate in their own anticipation of their time with God, which is the love of God. So, so love of God, always the answer. Sounds great. Well, in closing, I think I need to bust out my nativity set again, switch out the star, and go buy a planet Jupiter. That will just make me feel a lot better. But as of right now, I think we should answer a liturgy question. Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right. Uh, This week, we have a question from Joe. Joe says... Is there anything anywhere that sets in stone the roles and names of the roles of the altar server? Is it proper to combine the roles of crucifer and book bearer for the sake of logistics? And is it good form for a role of lead server to be created to eliminate the master of ceremonies? Uh, I don't know what any of this stuff means, but apparently it's a good question. Uh, it's a common one. Uh, let's see, okay. there's there's really three questions in there, so if we'll see. Oh, leave, uh, yeah, leave okay, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, the first one, where is it uh, listed about what the the names of the servers? Yeah. Uh, so the general instruction will speak about these things, but generally it's just under the heading of acolyte. And one acolyte does the book, one acolyte carries the candles, etc. The most detailed and official place would be to look in the ceremonial of bishops. 
But even then, they'll mostly be called acolytes, but they'll each be given a particular assignment. Okay, so the ceremonial of bishops is the answer to the first. Uh, the second one, is it, uh, for the sake of logistics, uh, suitable to, to combine... Combine the role the, of book bearer and crucifer. Crucifer yeah. is... The one the who carries the cross. Oh, the, right. The yeah. cross, sorry. The lucifers are the oh, ones that yeah. carry the candles. Uh-huh. Um, for the sake of logistics, maybe, but for the sake of ecclesiology, no. Because there's a principle that runs throughout uh, the documents that says... Each one should carry out all of, but only those parts which pertain to him or her. And so if uh, the worshiping church is uh, the mystical body of Christ and the mystical body each has, uh, the mystical body, like our own bodies, has parts performing different functions and the head can't be the, the, the hand, can't be the foot, can't be the eye, can't be the ear. Well, the, so too the mystical body, and this is sacramentalized and expressed, its ecclesiology is expressed by different roles doing those parts that are proper to itself. So even in the introduction to the lectionary for Mass, for example, it will say if there's two readings, ideally there should be two readers. This is really an expression of ecclesiology, not active participation at all, but each one doing his or her own part makes the mystical body shine out in its uh, truest uh, essence. However, if you only have one server at your daily Mass. You only got one server, yeah. Or if you only have one reader, Right, and so for the sake of logistics, the answer is yes. For the mm-hmm. sake of theology and ecclesiology, the answer is no. But hmm. sometimes, uh, you know, we celebrate the best we can. The third um, is... I'll, I'll read it again. Okay. Is, it, is it good form for a role of, quote-unquote, lead server to be created to eliminate the master of ceremonies? Yeah, first I would say, I'm not quite sure what the difference is between those two, but I do know that in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, it says explicitly that there should be, especially in larger parishes, a master of ceremonies who can oversee uh, the various celebrations. So no, that's a specifically named liturgical uh, ministry. Uh, so it appears that uh, the master of ceremonies, all things being equal, should still uh, exist to help the ceremony run uh, as smoothly as possible. And in the big picture, think about what a server is doing. If, if the action in the sanctuary is sacramentalizing the action around the altar of God or the throne of God, everybody ministering around the throne of God would be doing their part. They'd be doing it in an orderly way. Sacramentalizing that, you know, the servers might wear a white alb wearing the dress of heaven, and they're all operating in a harmonic and beautiful way uh, together to sacramentalize being a minister in the Holy of Holies. It's not just getting a function done so that this gets from there to there. It's sacramentalizing this heavenly reality surrounding the august mysteries of the altar. All right. Well, uh, Joe, I hope that answers your question. Just sorry you asked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think he knew what he was getting into. Okay. Joe seems like a nice guy. Uh, if you have any questions for the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.